So, day two, and I'm set to do battle with my Thai adversary, <laughs> who's there shouting out with his bull, bull, bullhorn the, the anti-message. <laughs> I should get one of those bullhorns. Boy, would that be unpleasant, wouldn't that? <laughs> All right. So, a uh, little bit of um, deepening even further into the theme that we've been exploring. Uh, in general, the idea that... Um, over the course of life, we learn to disavow certain emotions and impulses which we are, um, through early and continuing experience, uh, learn is not safe to express to other people. And so, rather than using the full repertoire of our emotional vocabulary and our true authentic impulses, we begin to put together what could be called a false self of um, compliant behaviors that are strewn together as a way to try to get love and succeed in the world. And it creates a kind of uh, shadow self of all the impulses and emotions that we feel will not get us love. And uh, we keep that shadow self in its place using a whole host of uh, repertoire, including uh, obsessive behaviors, repetitive, ingrained uh, patterns of, uh, in terms of everything from intellectualization to workaholism to uh, habitual binging and addictive strategies and uh, avoidance, uh, a whole host of distractions when we feel the presence of loneliness, we might turn on Netflix or seek the solace of Facebook or anything to keep at bay those uh, emotional states that we feel are too painful or too ugly to be with. So, moving on. Uh, the early experiences we have in childhood and our relational lives uh, define for us what love is. And that's a very difficult definition to let go of. If love is defined as reliable, available, someone who will uh, overall set a pattern of being available, then that is what we will come to expect and we will choose people who will essentially continue uh, or meet that internal working model. An internal working model is a important psychological term. It was first coined by uh, Bowlby, 
as the set of expectations that we have of other people, how we believe we'll be treated, how we believe we can behave, what behaviors and emotions we believe other people will reject. So we all carry around these internal working models that guide us and steer us. And they're stored in the right hemisphere of the brain. Alan Shore, a great neuropsychologist, has done a lot of tests and has even isolated the very part of the right hemisphere which stores these models. Uh, according to his research, it's in the orbital frontal region of the right hemisphere. And essentially what they are are a whole set of expectations. Those underlying feelings that lead us to believe that we can be safe with certain people, that we have to be on our guard with others. Those underlying feelings that somebody is going to be asking too much of us or that someone will abandon us. And these internal working models uh, are the loci of impulses that urge us to run away from intimacy, if we're intimacy-averse. They're the uh, working models that uh, urge us to connect with people often who are not loving or who are abusive. These are the underlying models that in certain situations when we should speak up and defend ourselves, we shut down. And other times when we are actually safe, urge us to become defensive and to confront when there's no conflict present. So, internal working models are established to help us survive our childhoods. Our earliest relationships are the most scary and they're the most important for us. We're all born vulnerable. We are born without any means to survive. And the first anxiety we feel is what's known as annihilation anxiety. The fear that something will destroy us, eliminate us. And so our most basic impulse, even more basic than to seek food or water, is to seek connection with other people. We will do it at all costs. That is the, the human being's completely primal impulse is to connect. And the way we connect and the rules that our early connections establish create a sense of coping strategies, when we should run, when we should, you know, uh, feel free to express emotions and impulses, when we should be guarded, when we should uh, essentially flee awareness into the dissociative realms of our thoughts. All of these early strategies are set to essentially get love and connection with those around us. Unfortunately, these internal working models that are established to help us survive our childhood and get our needs met aren't time-stamped. They don't just come to an end because we become adults, because we become older, because we become stronger, because we can, as people in our 
20s and 30s and 40s, we can now feed ourselves and close ourselves and we're nowhere near as vulnerable as we were as infants. But those internal working models, until we become aware of them, until we do the hard work of nurturing them and then slowly replacing them with adult coping strategies and adult models of the world, they will stay in place. It's very possible to be an extremely successful human being in the world with a lot of achievements. Somebody can write a lot of books and can even uh, own a lot of, uh, have achieved a lot of deeds and uh, acquired property and renown in a field. And still this person can be driven by the oldest, most early fear of intimacy, the most early fear of abandonment. They can become extremely anxious and preoccupied in relationships, or they can be completely intimacy avoidant and not be willing to reveal even the most sort of -of run-of-the-mill fears or normal human needs to another human being. So, if I give you a fact that contravenes a fact that you know, it's very easy for you to change the facts that you walk around with and store in your left hemisphere of your brain. If I tell you that uh, Burma is now called Myanmar, uh, it's an easy fact for you to replace. The What's known as explicit language-based ideas are very simple to replace. You can be told of a certain event in the world or be told how to use uh, um, uh, a, a new device and you can learn it rather quickly. Human beings can pass on new information using language to each other and we can, uh, we can master tasks very quickly. I read somewhere that it takes generations for monkeys to pass on the wisdom that it's best in certain areas to wash their fruit before they eat it. Uh, Literally, they have to observe each other. It has to be passed down from parents to children. It's a very slow process. Whereas within a couple of years of when the first computer mouse was came out, everybody around the world knew how to use a computer mouse. So we can pass on through information, uh, through language, a lot of skills. Yet, at the same time, the internal working models that form your innate beliefs, your what's called implicit view of the world, whether, especially your view of how you relate to other people, how safe it is for you to connect, how safe it is for you to feel your feelings and express them. Many psychologists for a long time believed those uh, underlying internal working models couldn't even be changed. They were so resistant. Now, we know that's not true. Mary Main's work and many other psychologists have shown us that we can change those what some people call attachment styles or internal working models, but it takes a lot of work. 
It takes a lot of sustained endeavor. It takes pushing into the areas where we are most, at, at times, terrified. It asks us to do hard work of, one, feeling internally energies and emotional states that are very uncomfortable. And then it asks of us, too, to find a community within which we can safely express those feelings which we have for years disavowed and not expressed. So how do we know when we're in the presence of a maladaptive coping strategy or what we could say an internal working model that's no longer uh, working on our behalf. Again, all of these coping strategies and internal working models, they worked at one point. For example, the child who grows up with overly punitive parents may well learn to lie when the parents confront the child over the child's behavior. A parent might say, don't eat the cookie. The child might give in to you know, it's lack of impulse control and eat the cookie. And if the parent is overly punitive, the child might train itself over time to lie rather than to acknowledge its behavior. It makes complete sense. The child is terrified of being shamed or uh, criticized or rejected by the parent. So the child will do anything to remain in good stead, including lying to get itself out of a conflict. So, of course, until this person learns that lying is not the way to mitigate all interpersonal conflict and all difficult situations in life, it will continue to lie and lie well into adult life whenever confronted. Some children or when a parent is angry, will train themselves to hide, to stay hidden in their room, or to avoid the, the parent who is drunk or filled with rage. And that person, throughout their adult life, might train themselves to either shut down or avoid any messy situation with other people. To give you an example from my own life, I grew up with a very drunk, violent father who used to beat up my mom in front of me and in the middle of the night would drag me out of bed and because uh, he still, for some reason, when he would get drunk, would believe he was in the army and make me take cold showers and scream the abuse at me that the people at the army had screamed at him. So he was repeating that drama. And years and years later, when it came to working with my own teacher, uh, Noah, who was a bit macho and could be a bit strict at times, I would revert back to the same exact strategies I developed to survive my childhood with my father. I would avoid bringing up with him, uh, at times, issues that I knew were going to create conflict. I would over-rehearse conflictual possibly conflictual conversations in my head over and over and over again to prepare for what I thought he was going to say so I'd be prepared to how I would reply and then how he would reply and then I would reply. So constant inner rehearsing, avoidance, shutting down are all signs that an early internal working model 
has been activated. There are many other signs. For example, disproportionate grief at the end of a short-term relationship. I'm sure we've all met somebody, maybe ourselves, who at one point in our life we've gotten into a week or two week long relationship, it hasn't worked out, and then at the end we feel completely bereft, or our friend feels completely bereft, and uh, friends can look at this situation and go, well, what's going on? It was only two weeks long. Why this degree of, of grief or sadness? And what's going on here is, of course, the history of abandonments and rejections stemming from much earlier in life have all been activated and are all flowing up through this current event, seeking awareness. Disproportionate expectations of other people, anxious clinging, urges to avoid any conflict whatsoever, shutting down amidst difficult conversations rather than stating our needs, obsessive replaying of events. The more disproportionate our response, the greater the degree of underlying old emotional activations are present. So you can, there's an old therapeutic saying that makes this easy to uh, express. It goes, when it's hysterical, it's historical. The more, what? No, but that's actually a very old. That's back from the 50s. I like Yeah. <laughs> Kathy wants to believe she came up with that, but actually it's, <laughs> it predates her birth. But uh, you Epigenetics. <laughs> so if it's hysterical, it's historical. Uh, if we feel there's a story, a resentment we can't let go of, we continue to play a conversation over and over and over and over in our head. If in the, we're about to have a difficult conversation, Julian calls you into his office and you don't know why, you start to replay all the things you've done and you might find yourself rationalizing all the stuff and then you get in there and he wants to compliment you. You ever do that? Yeah, you do. <laughs> so this is a complete fantasy. But it could happen theoretically. So I think we all know the times in life when we are activated, when the mind flares up with resentments, with rationalizing away our behavior when we've done something that we're guilty. When we rationalize of behavior that we're slightly ashamed about or feel guilty about. It's because an internal working model has told us that we can't admit what we've done. And so it urges us instead to rationalize our behavior so that we don't have to admit that we've done something that we feel guilty about. So what do we do about all this? This is bringing us up to today's practice. Emotion processing that's internal will later on in the week work on external emotional processing, but internal emotion processing involves, one, dropping 
whatever story is playing obsessively in the mind. How we drop it is simply, we talked about that yesterday, we acknowledge it, we welcome it, we might replace it at first with a skillful thought so that we can let go of the skillful thought. We simply go into the body and find where the uh, obsessive thought is being held. The goal, though, is to get to a place where once we stopped repeating the resentment, for instance, at the end of a relationship, the replaying of all the history of the relationship and the outrage at the behavior of an ex-partner or friend, we simply put that aside and we go into the body. And this process is known as uh, RAIN, R-A-I-N. It was first developed by uh, teachers like um, Tara Brach and uh, other teachers. It's now become very popular in the States. RAIN is an acronym that means recognize, allow, investigate, and N I use for nurture. So recognize means simply label whatever emotion is present. So that you might get a sense of by the story that's replaying over and over in your mind that was masking the emotion. If it's an outrage story, it's probably anger. If it's a story about uh, a self-pitying story about loss, it's probably grief or sadness. If it's a story rationalizing our behavior, it's probably shame or guilt. If it's a story uh, about um, the way the world should be and it's not, it's probably a feeling of powerlessness and lack of control. If you can't label the underlying emotion that's present, you can wait and simply observe and you'll get a sense from the feeling in the body. A stands for allow. Allow whatever emotion is present to arise rather than falling back into our tendency to resist, to push down, to go into thought whenever a difficult, uncomfortable emotional state is seeking our attention. Allowing is almost always somatic. It's not based on thought. There's no intellectual process in this. It's simply creating a safe space in the body, sometimes softening around the arms and the legs. All emotions that we're going to be working with are going to be playing in the very front of the body. So if your legs or arms are tight or the back of the neck, just relax those areas. The vagal vagus nerve expresses emotions through the, the belly, the heart, the heartache, the throat, and the face. So we're really going to be looking for the front of the body. Emotions are in the front of the body because not only are they meant to be felt, but they're also signals to other people. And of course, we couldn't signal other people from the back or, or from things, parts of the body that people couldn't see. So nature has set us up to express our emotions 
in the front of the body, facial expressions, tone of voice, slumping, slouching body, tight throat, tight chest, tight shoulders, tight belly. So just focus on that area. Allow these areas to change and shift with the emotional activation. Investigate the entire experience, not just noting how it feels at one point, but the arising of sadness or anger or fear, the playing out of it in the belly, the different areas that get activated, and then the diminution, the, re- the release of fear or anger or sadness. Um, finally, when the emotion is very strong, I urge nurturing, which is when you're in the full body of sadness or disappointment or grief or any emotional state, when it's at its peak, you can also just send it compassion. Kathy, in her talk tonight, today is going to be talking about compassion. I use phrases like, I care about my suffering. I'll take care of my suffering. I care about these feelings. I'll take care of these feelings. I won't let this happen to me again. Anything that reassures the feeling that makes it feel safer. There's a in the book uh, A Path with Heart, Jack Hornfield talks about a time when he had first become a monk and he was feeling a great deal of regret about not being able to see his girlfriend in the first few months of, or first few weeks of being a monk. And uh, he kept on having this thought about his girlfriend and how much he must, and how much uh, he was missing her and how much, what a mistake it was. And so he put aside the story and he found the uh, sensation that was present, the emotion. It was this hollowness in his chest. And he sat with this hollowness for a round and eventually what came up was this feeling, he said, of deep loneliness. And the more he sat with that loneliness in his chest, eventually what came up was this sudden realization that it had nothing to do with his girlfriend. It was a mourning for the fact that he had never felt loved in his family, never felt really, truly appreciated. And becoming a monk and letting go of the relationship was, for him, an emotional... um, It activated those early feelings of never truly feeling connected with other human beings. And when he sat with the feeling and felt it, it arose and it slowly dissipated. And then it became a feeling that he could be with through the rest of his life. That feeling of not being truly appreciated or loved by others. So that is beautiful a summary of what we'll be doing. So uh, finding a comfortable seated position. And we won't be working with a very really painful experiences 
that's up for you if you want, but I'm going to be having us work with lesser material. So, find a really comfortable seated position, closing the eyes. Lifting the shoulders with the in-breath, like you're trying to touch your ears, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, just drop the shoulders. And the second in-breath, pulling in the belly as tight as you can, and then relaxing, breathing out, softening the belly. And the third in-breath, tightening any muscles that feel uh, you'd like to relax. So tighten the muscles in the face, the fists, the toes, the buttocks, the legs, the arms, and then breathe out. And just soften and relax into like a sitting savasana where you're just truly at ease. So if you're tired and you haven't truly woken up yet, let your breath fall into a pattern where you slightly hold the in-breath for a few extra beats before breathing out. If you'd like to relax, try to make the out-breath last twice as long as the in-breath not pushing out the breath, but simply releasing it slowly like a thin thread of air. So take a, what we might call a baseline overview of the sensations in the front of the body, starting with what you feel in the area around the eyes, the micro-muscles around the eyes. Not changing anything, just noting there's do you sense a state of ease in these micro-muscles in the forehead, or are they slightly tight? Moving down to the jaw, does the jaw feel relaxed or does it feel clenched?
Feeling into the muscles of the throat. If you feel a slight tightness at the base of the throat, like a kind of cutting off, or does the throat feel soft and pliant? Noting the shoulders. Do they feel relaxed? And, or do they feel slightly contracted up towards the ears? The chest, does it feel open and spacious or does it feel tight? Noting any tightness, contraction, both at the top of the abdomen down to areas lower beneath the belly button. So at this point we're going to see if we can prime an emotional activation. Bring to mind a recent experience that activated a lot of repetitive thought in your mind. Something that was replayed in the internal movie theater of your mind anger at someone, resentment, disappointment over a relationship or friendship, disappointment with yourself. A time when the mind filled up with rationalization or self-justification or outrage or disappointment. See if you can activate that state again. Of course, when we invite this material up, it will very often be either resistant or come up with only a shadow of its former power. If that proves difficult, bring to mind 
something that you are often quite worried about. Financial insecurity, loneliness, lack of connection. Fear of abandonment. And then bring awareness, leave the story, and bring your awareness, the spotlight of your attention, down into the body and see if you can begin to find some form of clenching or tightness. You can even prime this by asking very emotionally wet questions to yourself. How does it feel to be unloved? How does it feel to be poorly treated? How does it feel to be lonely? How does it feel to be unsafe? How does it feel to be ashamed? How does it feel? And so forth. Now this practice might not yield results at first, but keep trying to use a combination of open-ended questions and images of recent experiences to instigate an emotional activation in the body. It's a little bit like baiting a fish, waiting until the emotion starts to appear in the belly or the chest or the throat. And then just create a safe, open container for this emotion. At this point, in practice, it will be very easy to be with. It's only when emotions face resistance that they feel uncontainable. Allowing, recognizing the presence of the emotion, investigating the somatic felt sensations without any resistance. And the final part of this process is when you feel sadness or anger, even the smallest 
expression of it. Just add a sense of compassion and care. I care about my loneliness. I care about my fear. I care about my grief, my loss. I care about my disappointment. I care about my confusion. Like you're greeting a child that for so many years has been seeking attention and has for so long been ignored and you're finally giving this child the acknowledgement that's been seeking for so long. So I'm going to shortly ring the bowl. So as usual, the instruction is to first feel some recognition of the efforts you've been putting in this week in your practice, and also to just slowly reintegrate sight back into the awareness of the body that you've been, and the awareness of any emotions that have been present 